Uh, welcome to episode nine of the Slow Home Podcast. My name is uh, Brooke McCallery. <laughs> had to think about that for a little while. And the joker sitting next to me is my husband, Ben, and my husband and co-host. And we're very glad that you're, uh, you're listening to us today. So, episode nine, mm-hmm. who did you interview? Today I interviewed um, Carl Honoré, actually. Uh, it's one of my favourite interviews so far. I think he's uh, one of the, probably one of the, the better known voices on the slow movement. And he's, he's the author of three books on slow living. Uh, and he's someone who I, I sent an email out to when I first launched the podcast in the hopes that maybe one day he would read it and maybe one day he would, you know, agree to be on this, uh, this new podcast. And he was back to me straight away and really keen to, to be part of it and talk about, you know, slow living and the slow movement in general, which is really where his passion lies. So, uh, yeah, it was really great to chat to him. I know you enjoyed listening to it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, uh, again, probably one of my favorite podcasts as well. Um, I don't really know Carl before this. I didn't know. I don't know a lot about the slow movement, um, so I'm coming at this quite um, naive in, in certain aspects. But also, um, really appreciated Carl um, and the things that he said. It's just like especially because he seems such like a high energy, very very uh, busy sort of personality, and. The question around how do you how do you relate that back to the slow movement? How do you justify what you do and being slow? Um, I think is quite interesting. Yeah, he's a really fast paced mm. guy. I mean, I obviously haven't met him in in real life, but even just listening to him speak, and he's um, you know incredibly vibrant and busy in uh, in a fulfilled kind of way. But you know, busy. He travels a lot. He's a he's a dad. He works. He speaks. He writes. There's a lot going on in his life, but he still maintains this overall slowness. It's it's just really interesting to hear him speak about, you know, slow and busy aren't mutually exclusive. And I think that's something that gets lost a lot. You know, he lives in he lives in London. He plays fast-paced sports. Like he plays um, ice hockey and I think squash or something like that. Really, you know, fast-paced, intense kind of games. And, uh, you know, that is so much not in keeping with the stereotype of the slow living kind of person who lives in the country and they, you know, they grow their own vegetables and they sit and read by the fire for hours at a time, you know, that kind of thing. Like, and I think it's, it does a disservice to the idea of slow living when that's what people think it is, because that's so far removed from the vast majority of our lives like most mm. of us don't have the time or the capability or perhaps even the desire to to live that kind of stereotypical simple slow life it was really nice to talk to him and see that that's actually not at all what he's on about because you get quite a few emails sent through <laughs> about people on that very topic as in i live a fast hectic life i can relate to it i mean i um carl i think was he a journo Yes. Yeah. So, and I mean, I work in that industry as well, and I know what it's like. I can appreciate it firsthand how, sort of, in terms of um, time, um, how demanding it is, how fast you've got to move. There's deadlines, you know, um, every day. So it's, uh, I I took a lot lot out of it. I've I've learned a lot. I've, you know, I, I think it's a really, really good, really good podcast. Yeah, I hope everyone uh, enjoys it as much as we did. 
The um, the show notes, before I forget, will be available, as always, at slowyourhome.com. And for today's episode, uh, episode nine, so slowyourhome.com slash nine. And I'll include links to Carl's website and his three books that he's written, which are really very good. Um, and I'd highly recommend you check them out. And uh, he's also given a TED Talk, which was back in uh, 2005. And I will link to that because it's really well worth the 17 minutes, I think, that, that it goes for. Um, really worth worth having a look. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think you guys will enjoy this this conversation. And uh, I have to say, I'm a little bit nervous about this because it's the first time I've introduced a sponsor to the show, but it's something that I'd be happy to, you know, to talk to you guys about because it's something that I've been involved in quite <laughs> significantly. Mm. Um, but today's show is sponsored by The Bloom, which is a, a new community website that I launched a few weeks ago. Uh, and it's designed to, to help members slow down and simplify, but more specifically, it's designed to support people through that process. So members pay uh, $10 a month to join the Bloom, and for that they get access to a private forum, which is not a Facebook group. I just want to point that out because I know a lot of people in an effort to simplify life have simplified Facebook out of their lives. So the the, uh, the forum is actually a, a forum on the website, and they also get access to um, weekly live video calls where you can call in, ask a question, get advice on something that you're struggling with in terms of simplifying or, or slowing down. Uh, and then on top of that, there's also a whole host of resources that I've created and continue to create. So things like uh, video courses, you know, uh, worksheets in how to identify priorities and uh, work, you know, work towards the kind of life that you're craving and, uh, you know, checklist pro- projects, things like that. So $10 gets you membership to The Bloom, $10 a month. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to to recommend it. If you want to if you want to join us, we'd love to have you. So just head over to thebloom.co and sign up. So that's thebloom.co, not .com. Not .com, .co, yes. Excellent. All right. Well, enjoy the interview. Yes, please do. Hi, Brooke. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thanks. Um, tell me, you travel, you travel a lot. So are you currently at home or are you elsewhere? I'm at home at the moment. I do travel a lot, but um, I do also at the same time spend a lot of time at home. And I'm, I'm sitting in my front room in, in South London now. Beautiful. Beautiful. I've, only been, I've been to London for one day. I really loved it. I'd love to, to go back and spend some more time there. But. Yeah, it's, it's a glorious city. I wouldn't really want to live anywhere else. And, and people often say, well, how can you be slow in London? And I think, I think London is a wonderful city for slowing down in because it's not a new world city in the sense of a downtown with lots of people driving many miles to get out to suburbs. It's a constellation of little villages that have grown together organically over the years. So I live in a, in, in, in a neighborhood called Battersea with, you know, I have a car, but I drive it maybe once a week. I walk everywhere. I've got two huge parks. There's all kinds of little mom and pop 
shops up and down the road, you know, a bread stall, a cheesemonger, a butcher that's been there for a hundred years. The, the merchants know my kids' names, the schools around the corner. So it's all very villagey. And yet I've got the throbbing pulse of this world city 10, 15 minutes away uh, on the bus or the tube. So it, you can change gears between fast and slow because I always think of slow or living slow is really a state of mind and you can take a state of mind anywhere. So you can be slow, you know, in the deepest most serene corners of the English countryside, but you can also be slow in central London, and, and I'm living proof of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, part of what you just described is also um, community. Do you think that community is a big part of living slow? You know, being engaged with your, your environment and the people that you live nearby and, and, you know, understanding, I guess, buying into a little bit of the slow food and the broader slow living um, ethos of you know knowing where things come from and knowing who the people behind the counter at the store is and you know um, knowing the name of your neighbours that kind of thing. Do you find that community really plays into it a bit? I do. I think community is at the heart of this slow culture quake, and community is something that we have sacrificed on the altar of speed because one of the things you cannot accelerate, no matter how much of a rush you're in, is, is human human relations. You, know, you can't forge a friendship more quickly because you need someone to backpack around Europe with you next week, or you know, you can't make somebody fall in love with you faster because you want to get married in June. You, you know, these things have a natural rhythm and an arc, and relationships need time. They need attention. They need people just to be together without rushing around, following a to-do list all the time. And I, I think one of the things that you see going out the window first when people get stuck in fast forward is that sense of community, and you do actually find that in big cities like London or Sydney or New York or Tokyo, wherever it is that people live on top of each other in close proximity, but they don't know their neighbors, right? And, and I think that's one of the reasons that we feel dissatisfied with our lives, why there's such a deep, you know, punching malaise in modern society is that we're surrounded by all this material affluence. We have at our fingertips, ostensibly, all of these social connections through, through social media, through the people who live next door to us in towns, but we have no real connection with them. And, and I think a big part of slowing down is building those relationships, fortifying those bonds and creating a sense of, of community. And, and, and that's often, you mentioned slow food, a big part of food and, and the joys of the table. Of course, it's a personal thing. It's the, it's the sensory pleasure of eating good food well prepared. It's the health. It's the better deal for the environment. But it's also the social connection of eating together, breaking bread together. You know, the, the English word companion comes from the two Latin words meaning with bread. And that's because when we come together around the table in a place of community and eat together, break bread together, that we are at our most close and our most human and in a lot of ways at our most happiest because all the research shows that one of the key ingredients of a life well lived and happiness is a strong sense of community, ties to people around you. And and in a way, I think if we take a bigger step away from this and look at the larger picture, I think that in terms of metaphors that fast is very often superficial and selfish and slow is deep and generous and connected and, and you know, um, it, it's a communal. And, and I think we, you, when you're going fast, when everything in your life is a race against the clock, when you're constantly busy and distracted, you don't create those strong connections with people around you. And when you slow down, you do. So there's absolutely no doubt that community and slow are two sides of the same coin, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree completely. And so what I, I hear you saying, and I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but 
um, when, when you're talking, I could very easily replace slow with simple. Um, so are you somebody who, uh, lives in a sort of, in a material sense, in a simple way, or are you, um, is slow living more just about a, a mindset for you? Well, it is a mindset for me. And part of that mindset, I think, is simplicity. It's moving away from, I mean, I'm not against complexity. I love complex ideas. And the world is a, is a roiling, jumbling mess of contradictions and uncertainty. That's just the world we live in as, as human beings. And I, I celebrate that. I think we, there's a lot of excitement there and a lot of learning to be done. And, and that's just the way the world is. It's, it's how you try and make sense of that. Uh, chaos around us. And, and I think that by slowing down, thinking deeply, reflecting, taking time to ponder and mull and, and contemplate, you can not only understand that world of uncertainty and contradiction and so on and complexity, but you can actually begin to shape it and steer it in ways that make sense for you and the people around you. So I think I'm not against complexity, uh, but I think one way to get to understanding complexity is, in a sense, this sounds a bit paradoxical, is to have a kind of slow and in a way, a simple mindset to approach it. Uh, I think you need simplicity in order to understand complexity, if that's not getting too complicated, in a way. Uh, I mean, I guess people talk about voluntary simplicity and the simplicity movement. In that sense of, of the word, I think that's very much overlaps with slow. And I see that in my own life, that I'm somebody who, you know, I'm, quite, I'm very mindful about the things that I consume. I don't, I'm not in any way interested in, in brand names or sh- the whole kind of shopping industrial complex you know there are things that i cherish and i will in, in, you know invest my money in them and i will enjoy them and so on but I, I i'm not i don't clutter my life up with stuff and so on i definitely keep it quite simple and my schedule is is pretty simple as well so from that point of view i create my own place of well i would call it slow other people might call it simplicity but from that solid ground of simplicity and slow it allows me to make sense of the of the complex world around us, I think. I found the exact same thing, actually. Um, you know, life is complicated. There's there's always a hundred things happening and different directions you can kind of take yourself, you know, in. But having that that mindset of of slowing down and 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 depth, as you said, rather than a a breadth or you know a superficial, shallow kind of breadth, you can cover a lot of ground. But you know, do you really gain a lot from it? Uh, but going deep and taking time to think and reflect and uh, just slow down for those pockets of time, you know, not necessarily live in a very slow motion kind of way. It has allowed me to have a lot more clarity in a lot of things, you know, mm-hmm. the way I think about the world and my 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 particular worldview and my values. That Those sorts of things have really strengthened, I think, since I've learned to slow down. Have you found Yes, that, that makes sense? I think that makes that makes perfect sense to me as well. They've they've become clear. I think it brings a kind of clarity. Mm. I think uh, when you're running around like a headless chicken, you don't have time to focus or concentrate or unpack and parse what's going on around you. You're just swinging like a monkey from one branch to the next, trying to keep your. I mean, now I'm mixing metaphors, but try just pedaling wildly to keep your head above water, kind of thing, rather than actually having those moments, those little moments of stillness. And serenity and calm, or you can look at the bigger picture, you can look at the small details, you can make sense of what's going on around you. And I think there's no question that I guess I guess I think of slow put it another way is as the the, the the art of shifting gears and knowing when to be fast and when to be slow, 
that that musician's idea of the tempo giusto, the idea that each piece of music has a natural tempo or rhythm to it. And I think human beings are the same, that we have, there are moments when the tempo needs to be high, it needs to be, you know, andante, it needs to be quick. But you also need those other moments. It's like the peaks and the valleys, uh, the ups and the downs. You need the rough and the smooth. You need them both. And in order to, you know, live a life fully, I think you've got to have that range of speeds. And, and that, that, that for me is the key. I'm certainly not an extremist or a fundamentalist of slowness. You know, I'm, I'm not advocating that everybody wander around doing everything in slow motion or at the speed of a, of a, a snail or a tortoise. That would be absurd. You know, I love speed. I live in, as I said, I live in London, which is a city of volcanic energy, and I play fast sports like ice hockey and squash. And I, I like a good deadline from time to time. But I, I also have learned to feel comfortable with and to cherish other rhythms and to, to reconnect with my inner tortoise, if you like. And it's that it's that changing of speeds that is where the, the key lies. And, and there's a, I think of it as the delicious paradox of slowness, that by slowing down sometimes at the right moments judiciously not only do you get better results but often you get them more quickly or you're better able to cope with the fast world and and meditation and mindfulness are a really good example of that because we know now that what people i mean when you meditate or do mindfulness practice over a period of time it has a pretty remarkable effect on on human beings it sharpens our concentration lowers stress levels so it has and it can boost happiness and combat depression and all kinds of wonderful payoffs, but it also does something even deeper. People who meditate over time begin to rewire their brains. They increase the level of what's called gyrification, which means they have more folds in the cerebral cortex, which means that they can process information faster, right? So it brings us to this notion of what I have already described as the delicious paradox of slow, that those who slow down with meditation and let's face it, there's nothing slower than meditating apart from sleeping. Those who slow down with meditation or mindfulness are better able to cope with the fast-moving world around us than those who never slow down at all. Or, or put it another way, uh, you, know, you have to slow down in order to thrive in this fast-moving, complex, busy world. Uh, and and, and that, I find people, are more and more they're getting their heads around that contradiction or that paradox and realizing that slow is not lazy, it's not torpid. It's not unproductive. It's not boring. It's not stupid, right? Uh, that actually slowness has a role to play in the 21st century and that patience is still a virtue. Yeah, that's something that I have come across a lot, a lot. Uh, the, the negative connotations of slow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Even up until, I mean, last week I got a, a comment on one of my, my blog posts and someone said, you know, do you think that we could rethink what we call this movement as slow because it's got such a, you know, a, a negative mm-hmm. name? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Slow is not bad. Slow is not boring. Slow is not, you know, uh, sluggish. It's not the same as sluggish. It's so mindful and intentional and, you know, engaged. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it, the opposite of sluggish. Uh, but there is... But th- that tension is there, and if, and it's not surprising because it's simply the flip side of a roadrunner culture that has placed speed, fast, busyness, distraction, stimulation on a pedestal mm-hmm. is, the, is that we've created this deep and abiding taboo against the very idea of slowness. I mean, slow is a dirty word, a four-letter word in our culture, and I've been grappling with this from, for 10 years now. You know, when I first, my first book came out in Praise is Slow, when all of this was just starting to crest. Uh, you know, I, I found myself constantly warding off that attack from the left flank and the right flank and whatever flank you want to think of. You know, people saying, oh, well, slow has got such bad connotations. 
Um, it, it, I just feel uncomfortable with it. I think less and less that's the case now. I mean, I, I feel that the tide has turned and the tectonic plates are shifting below the surface. And you see that in the, in the, pe- the way people are more and more at ease with the language of slow. And, and I'm, I personally find it less common now to have that criticism made. Uh, it's still there. And, of course, not everybody knows about what the slow movement necessarily means and, and their first reaction will still be the one you described a moment ago, that knee-jerk unease, that feeling of, oh, no, well, slow doesn't feel right. It seems wrong. Couldn't we find another word for it? But uh, it's a word we have, and I think in some ways it's a useful one. It's a very short, pithy, universally recognizable. It's a word that everybody, even outside the Anglosphere, knows, and that's helpful. It allows people to use it as shorthand around wherever you are on the planet as a shorthand for a better, more balanced way of doing things. And um, I guess that just means if you're still coming across people like that, down under, then there's more work for us to do. <laughs> there is. Well, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, back in 2005, that was about the time your first book came out, wasn't it? When 2004. Your... Yeah, 2004. So you gave your TED Talk um, on slow living, which is awesome. I really I watched it again last night. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for, for those of you who would like to see it. Uh, but so 10 years ago, there wasn't this talk of mindfulness, uh, you know, in every se- I feel like every second uh, social media post or blog post that I read is talking about mindfulness or meditation and the benefits of taking time to, you know, practice gratitude. And so like you say, the language of slow has become mainstream. But 10 mm-hmm. years ago, that wasn't really the case. So how did you first, first of all, how, how did you first come to discover the idea of slow living and who was who was talking about it and writing about it ten years ago? Well, if well, it's the, the, my starting point, and I think this is quite common for people, is that when we get stuck in fast forward, it often takes a shock to the system or, or a wake up call to make you realize that you've forgotten how to put on the brakes and it's and that this is backfiring on you. And and for a lot of people, that's and I talk about this, I think, in my TED talk, don't I? That, that you know, for a lot of people, it's the body, that it's health. Some, suddenly you, you have some kind of illness and that's the signal that you've just forgotten how to put it on the brakes and that this is doing you real harm. Or maybe a relationship dies because you haven't had the time or the tranquility to listen to the other person or to be with them or, or switch off your smartphone in bed. For me, my wake-up call came when I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And back in those days, I mean, I just couldn't slow down. So I would go into his bedroom, sit on his bed with one foot on the floor and speed read Snow White, you know, <laughs> skipping lines, paragraphs, entire pages. I became an expert in what I, at the time, dubbed the multiple page turn technique. You, you, <laughs> a, you know, we've all been there as parents, right? But it never works because no. I, just, I just know these stories inside out. So, you know, we were constant loggerheads. My son would say, you know, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the stories? And I, <laughs> what happened to Grumpy? And this horrifying state of affairs went on for quite a while, actually, until I caught myself flirting with buying a book that I heard about, a book entitled The One Minute Bedtime Story. So someone had very helpfully taken, you know, the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen and Snow White and all these wonderful stories and boiled them down into 60-second chunks. And I, I, I honestly caught myself thinking, hallelujah, you know, what a great idea. I'm getting that from Amazon, you know, drone delivery. And then there was the light bulb over the head moment. And I just thought to myself, whoa, has it really come to this? You know, I, I, have I really, am I really in such a hurry that I am prepared to fob off my son with a soundbite at the end of the day instead of a story? And that was the moment of truth, one of those moments of searing epiphany when you see yourself in sharp relief from the side. And what I saw there was just 
ugly and unedifying. And I knew that I'd lost my bearings and my compass. I'd lost my mind. And so I set off to, to explore this whole culture of speed and, and the, the, the countercurrent of slow and to try and understand how they fit together and where we could go and get out of this, this vortex of hurry and get away from the virus of impatience. And, and pretty soon I, as a, as a journalist, and I, you know, I started traveling around the world and asking questions and investigating, and I found that more and more people were, were coming around to this idea and, and looking for ways to put on the brakes. But interestingly, there were very few people using the word slow. At that time, there was slow food and slow cities. Nobody was talking about a general slow movement. Uh, a lot of people were talking about decelerating, doing things mindfully or doing things not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. All of that language, quality over quantity, all those things were in the air. But what I did was take slow with a capital S and elevate it up from slow food and slow cities and say, well, why don't we, I asked the question in the book, really, could we talk about a general slow movement and take this principle and widen it out, sharpen it up and say, you know, doing things at the right speed, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, quality over quantity, doing things mindfully, doing things well uh, instead of quickly. Uh, could we apply that as a lens and use it to reshape and rethink everything we do? And, and that was kind of the question I asked in the first book and came up with lots of examples of how people were already doing that. And then that book really just landed a bit like a bomb at the right moment. And from there, just there's been this explosion, this huge blossoming in, in the slow movement as people have taken slow and used it as a prism through which to reassess and, and, and reinvent everything they're doing. So pretty much any field of human endeavor now, you will find slow at work in it. So there are movements now for, I mean, you name it, slow travel, slow art, slow sex, slow medicine, slow education, slow parenting, slow media. I mean, I live in London, as I've said, and the BBC this week is running a series of what they call slow TV, which started in Norway, was hugely successful there, and now has spread out to the BBC here in Britain, and will there'll be a slow TV series being filmed now in the United States. So even in the media, slow technology, it's, it's everywhere now. And, and I used to feel like a voice in the wilderness. Now I feel like I'm pretty close to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you asked who was talking about this. I think if you go back to when my book first came out, or even if you went back even further, let's say you went back 15, 20 years, and if, if I had raised the flag of slow then, sure, I think it would have resonated with aromatherapy cooperatives and yoga teachers, <laughs> Buddhist monks, but, but I don't think it would have caught the imagination of the mainstream the way it has now. Uh, now you look around and everybody is saying the same thing, which is, I'm racing through my life instead of actually living it. This is, there's too much speed in the system. And even now you're finding the fastest people on earth, the people who, whom we all are rushing to keep up with, the people who seem to have been setting the speed pace for so long, they're also putting the brakes on. So if you go to Silicon Valley, you'll find every big company there has silent rooms where people can do meditation or mindfulness or get a massage or you know, have, have a nap. Or there are big companies on Wall Street or the city of London are encouraging their staff to switch off their uh, smartphones or get away from technology. Uh, a little while ago, The Economist magazine published an article entitled In Praise of Laziness. And it could so easily have been called In Praise of Slowness because in that article, The Economist was saying everything that I've been saying for the last 10 years and that more and more people are saying right across the spectrum, which is in order to thrive in this fast world, 
the solution is not to go faster and faster. The solution is to slow down. So they say the economist said, you know, you've got to do fewer things. You've got to delegate, focus on what's important, let everything else go, switch off your technology. You've got to think slowly. You've got to reflect deeply. All of this stuff. And this is the economist we're talking about. It's not, you know, Buddhism Monthly or <laughs> New Age Weekly. This is the in-house Bible of global capitalism sending exactly the same message, which is that slower is better and that slow has a role to play in the modern world. So I feel much less like a kind of wild prophet coming in from the desert <laughs> with this idea of slow now because really it's everywhere. And I just open up my inbox every day and it's full of people of all stripes, every socioeconomic group all around the world saying, this completely resonates with me. This is what I'm doing in my school, my company, my family, my life, my sports team, whatever. And this is how I'm using slow. So it's it's been a, an extraordinary ride. There's still a long way to go. But goodness me, I, if you told me t- 10 years ago where we would be now with slow, I would have I would have thought you were uh, on something. <laughs> I think, like you said, you know, your first book landed and went off like a bomb. And it was timing because, you know, you look back at the last 10 years and the increase in just mobile phone usage, you know, mm. take away the internet and everything else, just mobile phones and now smartphones, uh, you know, it means that we're hyper-connected all the time and there's this fear of missing out that everybody is living with constantly and, you know, comparisons and social media lives that people craft for themselves and all of that is this, this world of hyper-connection but it's not giving us any real connection. So, you know, the message of slow is coming in and it's hitting people now where they're, they're feeling this ultimate mm-hmm. dissatisfaction and unfulfillment uh, in amidst this, you know, this crazy connected world. And it's just, it's resonating. It's so heartening to hear feedback from people saying, you know, my life has changed because of slow and, you know, my relationships yes. are stronger because of slow and, and things are, you know, moving well because of slow. It's, yeah, it's really heartening to see how it's changed. It is. I mean, it's world. hugely, I mean, because, I mean, this is, I've been on this, um, path for a long time, and 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 it can sometimes be be be, be tiring. It takes it can take a you know a fair bit out of you, and it's but but I keep, what keeps me going is that feedback, and it is those stories that I hear from people of so many different kinds saying slow has changed my life, and and I you know I've just simply lost track of the number of people who've said that to me or written it to me, and 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 it it does it keeps me going personally, but it also. I'm not that important in the greater scheme of things. What's important is the idea driving forward, and it's so much closer to the heart of what we do as a society now, and and, and that that raises my hope. It makes me feel much more and more hopeful all the time that we will turn around this super tanker. I, I think you're completely right about the timing. It, the, the first book landed just as social media was starting to take off, and it and and that I think the idea really now of slow hits people in the solar plexus because. Before social media exploded, a lot of the speed was focused. It was chiefly focused on our working lives. Now it has spread right across. So you, there's a feeling of, well, we use that phrase always on, don't we? That's become very much a defining uh, expression to sum up how we live now. And, and of course, always on is, is, a, is utter folly. Right? <laughs> to be always on, it just doesn't make any sense. You need to be off in order to be on sometimes and vice versa. And I think increasingly people realize that, and, and that's why we are starting to see. I, it always happens with new technology. When it comes along, it takes a while to create and forge the social rules and protocols and etiquette around the gadgets, so that we 
get the most out of them and are not enslaved by them. And I think we're starting now to work out ways, whether it's email-free days or a lot of companies switching down, switching off email outside working hours like Volkswagen, uh, Puma, uh, the Ministry of uh, the Interior in Germany. I mean, the big, big companies and organizations realizing that always on is not a good thing and that people need to be off uh, uh, as well. So you're starting to see that rethink going on around social media and the gadgets uh, in the workplace. But even people at a very granular individual level are carving out little ways of saying no, of putting speed limits on the information superhighway. And there's this new trend now, a ritual, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, called stacking. Does that ring a bell with you? Stacking? I'm not sure if it's reached Australia yet. But it's this thing that millennials will do, you know, the millennial generation who supposedly have to be online all the time. What they're doing is when they go out for a meal now, everybody piles up the phone in the middle of the table in a stack and whoever reaches for the phone first during the meal pays the bill for everybody right <laughs> it's just a, it's just a nifty deft little way of saying we have this moment here we're in here actually in the real world together yeah. we'll never have this moment again why spoil it by looking at instagram or checking our latest update on snapchat why not just wait right and be here completely fully together in the moment and and i think those are little ways of little small acts of rebellion small acts of slow that that are pointing the right direction suggest that we will come out of this early you know over the top euphoria with the technology where we're just like small children in a, in a candy shop i think we will uh you know people and i still see it in a lot of people that i know they you know they understand that their productivity and their effectiveness is not increased by being constantly on. But when they're surrounded by colleagues and coworkers who are constantly on, no one wants to be the first to say, actually, yes. <laughs> actually, I'm turning my phone off on Friday afternoon and I'll see you on Monday morning. You know, no one wants to be that person because there's, again, the negative connotations. He doesn't work hard enough. She's not invested in her job. You know, so I think those kind of social movements that will you know the little digs at, at that always on kind of thing like stacking they're only going to help people uh you know adopt this this idea of switching off and you know disconnecting yeah well i think what's telling about the stacking the success of stacking is that it's a it's a it's a communal act mm. it's several people together coming and saying let's do this together rather than one person you know this is the problem it's very difficult now i mean no man is an island and less now than ever before because of the technology. We're so hyper-connected all the time around the clock that it's impossible almost, or it's very hard to arrive one day and just declare unilateral slow, you know, just say, well, that's it, I'm switching off. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, there, are too, there are too many expectations in all directions. We're too lashed together and leashed together to do that. So it has to be something that we do as a group or as a collective. So it might start with a you know, one department in a company, or it might start with a family or a group of friends. And just having the conversation about what does this mean being on all the time? When could we look at moments to switch off? And once you break that ice and start having that dialogue and that, that chat about what it means and how, it, what, how you could thrive and benefit from switching off and unplugging sometimes, then you find that other people are having that, those same thoughts. And once the the wall of silence is broken, you tend to find, and I've seen this in many, many cases, um, both in the workplace and in people's private lives, that you start then to go to the next stage, which is to say, okay, well, we all agree that this is nuts. <laughs> what is the best way forward for us in this moment, in this family, in this company, in this neighborhood or whatever? And, and increasingly, you find more and more creative and, and unusual ways for people to, to, to switch things off. I mean, one thing I... I did a program recently for uh, the ABC, which helping fast, busy, highly connected families 
slow down and, and, and put on the brakes and, and live their lives instead of rush through them. And one of the things that I had to tackle was the use of technology. And the way I did that was to – I adopted a, almost a shock and awe, cold turkey approach and just said, okay, for the month that I've got you, where we're going to try and slow you down and give you a taste of another way of living, we're going to, we're going to switch things off big time here. So in the home, I created a gadget box for the family. And all the gadgets, the phones and the tablets had to go into that box when people came across the threshold into the home. And it just created a different, it created, it imposed a discipline that people had been, in those families had been yearning for, especially the parents, but also the children as well, though they maybe didn't realize it. And once somebody came from the outside and said, not only is it okay to unplug, but I'm actually going to force you to, right? It's, you're going to have to do it. That's like a boot camp. In they went. And sure, there are withdrawal symptoms and a little bit of unease at the beginning, and certainly one of the teenage girls struggled because, of course, all her friends are constantly, um, you know, sending photos back and forth. So she had a lot of those worries about switching off. But everybody else pretty much in the experiment just loved it. And even a little boy I had who was probably eight, nine years old who'd been a real Xbox kid, uh, he found that he was able to, you know, go out and ride his bike and do all that free play and outdoor tactile play that kids have done through, throughout history. He got back into all of that. And, and when it was time for me to leave the family at the end, you know, he said, well, you know, I'm not going to go back to playing Xbox every day. I'm going to have a couple of days, maybe on the weekend, I'm going to do an hour here or half an hour there, and that'll be enough for me. Uh, so it was, it was quite instructive and, and in a lot of ways very uh, hopeful to see that people who on the surface are lost causes, right? <laughs> they just they are lost to technology forever, you think. that gener- they, can be pull- they can be pulled back. They can be rowed back and helped to find a balance so that, yeah, sure, I mean, I'm as I said earlier, I'm not a Luddite. I have a MacBook and an iPhone, and, and, and I, I find them great fun and useful. But I, they all have a little red button that says off on it. And, and I think it's, we got, it's about kind of using that button again and, and coming back to the beginning of this spiel, I guess. It's, it's about doing it together. It's very, very hard, very scary to do it on your own. And I think it takes courage. It takes imagination. It takes discipline. And sometimes it takes a little nudge from somebody on the outside to help you, to give you permission almost to switch off. Is that something that when you first started slowing down, um, you did with your family? Did you sort of go and speak to them and say, this is how I'm feeling and this is what, you know, the repercussions of living this hectic pace have been? Well, I, I did, but it was it was really more with my – because at the time, my children were too small to understand any of that language. I mean, they were they – were, they were, I mean, my son was probably three or four when I've had this revelation and my daughter was one. Okay. So I could – I mean, I suppose I could have sat down and had that conversation. It would have been very one, one-sided. <laughs> could have been uh, and, an and interesting we, bedtime story. It would have been. <laughs> we would have um, – yeah, no, we, so we, it was something that was really between me and, and, and my wife. And a lot of it was, for, was me internally because I was the problem in the family. My wife is naturally more of a – she's less, much less of a rusher and a hurrier mm-hmm. by nature than I am. And I think that's quite common in relationships that tortoise and hare, the, the opposites attract that old story. It's true. I think often you do find couples get together and one of them is fast and one is slow. And that at first is – great fun because you're different and you bounce off each other and there are sparks and you tease and there's it's but then it becomes annoying right <laughs> because the, the fast person finds a slow person exasperating the slow person finds the fast person irritating so so that that's where we kind of got to that stage and so I, I i think that i really between the two of us i had much more work to do internally on myself than my wife did um because she 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 was already well in touch with her inner tortoise anyway so uh so that's that's kind of how it played out in our home. And, and in fact, we had already decided 
not to have all of the gadgets for the children. So my kids didn't really have, uh, I mean, we have TV in the house, but they didn't have any kind of video games or computer screens or tablets or anything until they were, well, now they're in their teens, they, until they were really 12 or 13. So they, they went all the way through their childhood without having any of that. Um, so, so, so that was something we definitely decided between us. Right. And that was obviously a very intentional choice from the, from the outset. Mm, and one that we didn't find hard to defend really at any point because our, because our children had never really been exposed to it. They would come back from play dates slightly perplexed because they'd go along and they'd say, well, so-and-so just wanted to sit and play PlayStation. And that was a bit boring. <laughs> well, it's a, so it's a bit try. And then the kids would come here and their friends would come here and wonder where the screens were. But of course, you just tell them there is no screen, and, and because they're children and they're hardwired to play, you take away the screen, they will play. Right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and they'll get, you know, there may be some withdrawal symptoms, and if you've got a kid who's really hooked on the blinking screen, then, then they're, they're, the, the, that process of transition might take longer. But um, no, I mean, our house definitely became a kind of screen-free oasis, I think, for a lot of um, other kids. And it was great. You know, they, they were wonderful at playing, and they played with great imagination and used their hands and got messy and dirty and got into trouble. <laughs> you know, all these things that go into making a childhood worthy of a name, right? Exactly. You know? exactly. No, I'm a big, uh, a big believer in dirty, muddy, grass-stained mm. kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that's the childhood I. that I had as well. So that's um, something that I look back at fondly. And, you know, I know I want to replicate that for my kids. And uh, well, it's, yeah, it's very, it's very important, I think, because we are the last generation of parents who do remember that kind of childhood that, that have for us. It's not a folk memory. It's a real memory. We remember being outside all the time. We remember adults just being on the fringe of the picture, not center stage, telling us how to play, how to play better, playing with us all the time, co-playing, driving us here, ferrying us there. Uh, I think if you talk to any adult, you know, parent, probably up to around the age of, down to the age of maybe sort of 30, 35, they will have had that kind of child, that free range, slow childhood where they just, you know, they got booted outside and they went and played and, and then you hear your mom shouting, you know, dinner, and then you'd come home. Now it's very much children, well, two things are happening. One is that they're wrapped in cotton wool because everyone's terrified to let them out of their sight or outdoors. So they're, they're raised in captivity in a way, but at the same time, their childhood has become a, a race to perfection where mm-hmm. people are just on this treadmill of achievement and extracurricular activities and earlier and earlier learning. And, and a lot of the, the the simple magic of being a child has been squeezed out of the equation. And of course, a lot of the basic building blocks of child development get lost as well. That kind of, that those moments of unstructured time of free play of exploring the world on your own terms at your own pace of, of boredom. Even we're all so terrified of boredom nowadays, right? You know, for all of human history, when a child came to a parent and said, "I'm bored," that was the child's problem, right? You know, your parent, your mom, or your dad would say, "Well, too bad." You know, go outside and play. Or remember that phrase: "Use your imagination," right? Use your mad. Now, a child comes to a parent and says, "I'm bored," and it's the parent's fault. You, you feel, "Oh no, my child is bored." You know, where's the iPad? Maybe we need another extracurricular activity in the schedule. And yet it's in those moments of boredom, of restlessness, of not knowing what's coming next, of not being spoon-fed the next bit of entertainment or learning or activity, that children, that's when they learn how to think creatively and invent and take pleasure and use their imagination. There's that expression again. It's when they learn how to 
get on with their peers and, and look into themselves and work out who they are rather than what we want them to be. And, and that's, I think, why there's a huge push towards bringing slow back into the world of child-rearing education. So there's a big slow education movement, slow parenting, slow families. This program I did for the ABC, uh, we haven't got a title for it yet, but it's essentially the, the idea of slow nanny, right? <laughs> I, I come in and help people put on the brakes and, and, and see that there is a different way of living as a family. Everything doesn't have to be a dash to the finish line and a race against the clock. So I think you're seeing that culture quake of slow reaching into every corner of, of human activity and, and very much you're seeing it in the whole world of uh, child rearing as well. I think part of it comes back to what we spoke about at the very beginning as well. Uh, the death of community, you know, people, mm. I, I knew my neighbors. I would, if I wasn't at home, I was probably at my neighbor's house playing in their backyard, you know, but that doesn't happen so much these days. And I feel like uh, recently there's been a, a whole host of, Incidents in the States where mothers and fathers have been reported to police because their children, they were letting their children out to play, you know, yes. they were letting them walk to the park by themselves. And these aren't toddlers, you know, these are six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the parents are being reported to police, reported to child services. So people are terrified of that happening. And the reason it's happening is because perhaps we don't know, you know, the kids' names and we don't know if they're meant to be out by themselves and we don't feel like we can ask them because if you go up to a kid on the street and you don't know them, then again, there's that fear of doing the wrong thing or being judged or you know and i think it's um yeah fear is a big part of it and i think getting to the people around you would help alleviate that a lot it does i mean that's that's you're absolutely bang on with that analysis that's completely what's happened is that we've turned families have turned in on themselves they've shut the front door and turned in so that kids are doing activities that have where they get driven to other parts of the city uh, or they stay at home and play on uh, you know gadgets or surf the internet or do social media so there's very little real connection with the people around them and yet as we were saying earlier that is what nourishes that's what makes us human that's what brings us together that's what makes us healthy happy that's what life is about is is is, is real community not online communities i mean you can have online communities they're useful but if that's all you have then you do end up in some pretty dysfunctional places and i think that's the case with What's happened now with ordinary family life is that people look outside the front door and instead of seeing a neighborhood, they see a cesspit full of drunk drivers and pedophiles and, Absolutely. and, you know, and nosy neighbors who are going to report them to the police if they let their child walk to the shop to buy some sweets on their own, even though they're 12 years old, right? And I think that, that, that's part of what's gone wrong here. You said fear. I think fear is absolutely at the heart of this. Is as parents, we've lost our confidence mm. in our own instincts in our own ability to make the right decision for our families. And we're afraid of being judged, of being seen to be less than the alpha perfect parent. And so the easiest thing to do when you're afraid is to follow the herd. And the herd is doing one thing. It's not letting its children outside. The herd is staying indoors, right? shutting the door and keeping the outside world out. But I think because we are who we are as human beings and we do have those basic instincts and, and needs to connect with people who live next door to us and have that that what um, Virginia Woolf called, she described childhood as the, the, the sacred cathedral, the cathedral space that was childhood, that sense of openness and uh, capaciousness and you open the front door and the whole world is, is, is available to you. I think people, especially as I was saying earlier, as parents, we remember childhood like that. We know it can be like that. And in fact, the truth is that the world is a lot safer than it's ever been. It just doesn't feel that way because we're just bombarded 
by so much you know, terrifying coverage in the 24-7 media cycle, right? It makes the world seem much more dangerous than it is. But actually, most big cities now are a lot safer than they've ever been, you know, uh, from the point of view of traffic and the way cars are built. And they're just, they just are. I mean, objectively, the trouble is, as a parent, you don't feel that way. You just, you're just terrified. But I think because people have that need, they're looking for ways to bring back that outdoor experience for children. And there are lots of wonderful initiatives around. I mean, here in England, there's a kind of close your streets initiative where you can apply to the local council to close your street traffic for a day or permanently or for a week or whatever. And what happens immediately, and I've seen it in my own neighborhood, is as soon as you close off the street, what happens suddenly your neighborhoods that look like ghost towns turn into a Bruegel. You know, there's all these people like medieval peasants come out of the common children who didn't even know they lived in the same street or suddenly playing, you know, rounders or throwing a ball around or, you know, playing hide and seek. And, and people immediately see that and they, they hear the laughter and, and the chatter of the children and they see people smile and they think this is wonderful. Mm-hmm. This is, this is within reach. This is not taking a man mission to Mars, right? This is just reclaiming our street. <laughs> it can be done. Well, and so you are seeing more of these initiatives or, or the other initiative I think you see more of is outdoor schooling or taking children out into nature, reclaim. There's a whole big movement of taking children back into uh, the outdoors and so on rather than having them plonked in front of screens in, in darkened rooms all day. So, you know, we can turn this around. Not only can we, but we are. And, and so you see more and more of it and, and people must not lose hope because it is there for the taking and, and people are taking it back. I think that's where the hope is, you know, in seeing you give people an opportunity, you tell your kids to go outside, use their imagination, you close the street, you get, you know, people together, you um, you engage with community and it takes literally no time and people yeah. are re-engaging with their capacity for humanness and connection. It doesn't mm-hmm. take long. So I think the more we see those those kinds of, of movements and, and activities and, um, you know, opportunities for us to, to do that, the more... I think the the hopelessness will will go away because yeah. you know, and it's and it's so it's so real and 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 you don't need a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint slide or a graph to tell you any of this. You just need to live it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just need to spend time a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday morning or whatever that happens in your and just go out and and talk to people and you will feel it in your blood. You'll feel it in your bones and you'll see it in your children's faces that this is the right way to have those connections locally. I mean, in London a few years ago, we had um, a big snow, well, a big snowstorm by English standards that completely paralyzed the city. So there were no flights, there were no buses, there were no trap. Nobody could go to work. And there was a carpet of snow. And it was extraordinary, the transformation. People came out into the streets and made snowmen and had snowball fights and went up to the park together. And it, was, it really was like a throwback to a different age. And even now, that was about four or five years ago, people still talk about those mm-hmm. days with a, uh, a honeyed nostalgia, you know, and almost a tear in the corner of their eye of this time of, of, of just simplicity, you know, something it didn't cost anyone anything to go out and let their children run around outside and have a chat with the neighbor. And yet it made them feel so good, right? So I guess the, the question then becomes, well, if, if it's free and if it's, if it's got such an extraordinary payoff, then why can't we do more of it? You know, why, why are we not doing more of it? And, and we, we are doing it more and more, but there's plenty, plenty more to do. I think that's why it's so important that you keep, you know, that you personally keep writing your books and keep talking and talking to people and, and getting out there and, you know, spreading the word because people are so open to it now. You know, as you say, they, they yeah. want it to change. It's just a, you, you need that push, you need that reminder, you need that, 
you know, little voice telling you. You do. And I, I very often feel that people are just teetering now on the brink. They know that there's another way. They feel that they want it, but they just need a little nudge. <laughs> and I, I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is just – I felt before like I was explaining and critiquing. And I'm still doing those things. But now often I just feel like I'm just giving people a little one-fingered nudge. <laughs> and, and then they say, oh, then they say, well, thank you so much for giving me permission for making it possible. And I think, well, you know – you, well, that, but that's sort of the way that we are now. I think people almost need somebody from the outside to come in and say, "You know what? It's okay. You know, it's 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 going to be all right. You can slow down, and not only will it be all right, but it'll be a whole lot better uh, if you do." And 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 you know, I, I, as as I've said um, all along, I, I feel more and more optimistic because I do think that we're getting to that stage now where it's not a question of if; it's a question of when and how. Yeah. I think it's a, a perfect summation point. Um, I could talk to you for another hour, but I'm very mindful <laughs> of your time. <laughs> um, another time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. Uh, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. This was wonderful. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure. No, it's been uh, all mine. But um, is there uh, – where can people find out a little more about you? Well, that's easy. I, I have a website, which is – carlhonore.com so carl c a r l h o n o r e.com and there's loads of stuff up there about um, i mean if you want to know anything about slow that's a good starting point because my links page will point you in every direction imaginable to all the different strands of this slow culture quake uh, there's a lot of audio a lot of video uh, there's information about um, books i i blog about what's happening and slow and there are a lot of little links so so it's it's a good it's a good starting point a good jumping off place for people to dip their toe in or to go even deeper if they want to so a bit of both no, it's a great it's actually a really great hub for everything everything related to slow uh, and i'll include a link to that in the uh, the show notes for people who would like to visit uh thank you again carl and um i hope you enjoy the rest of your day i'm off to do some yoga now as it happens Ooh, enjoy <laughs> so, not not fast yoga <laughs> No, 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 not speed yoga, no, the, no. Real, the real deal. But I, I'm off to a slow start, which is uh, just the way I like it. Fabulous. Well, enjoy. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. All the best. This has been another episode of the Slow Home Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe via iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening.